Big issues, big names. An interview every month. It's not that simple. A podcast from Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. Today is quite a big one because we're going to be discussing the topic of democracy. What's happening with democracy? Is it doomed? Is it alive? Uh, can we be uh, uh, confident about uh, a system that has been under threat in various parts of the world? And let's be honest, we've even seen um, recently in the United States that's supposed to be one of the beacons of democracy, um, election results being contested, and then, of course, the insurrection at the Capitol. So really pertinent topic to discuss it right now, and we're uh, really honored to have an opportunity to discuss it with really uh, a global expert on this on this matter in this landscape, who is Daniel Ziblatt. Daniel is a Eton professor of the science of government at Harvard University. He's an American political scientist with a research focus on comparative politics, democracy, uh, democracy and democratization. Uh, he also does some work with the Social Science Center in Berlin. Uh, co-author of a very well-known and acclaimed book, How Democracies Die, that uh, spent several weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list back in 2018. Uh, Daniel, I could keep going with your um, with your uh, CV because it's it's quite an impressive one. But I think the key message is uh, you're you're an expert in this topic, and we're really glad that we have you here to discuss it. So I think to kick this conversation off. Um, I will ask you to to tell you how to tell us how democracies die. Well, first, just a word of thanks for the invitation to be with you and to be talking about this important topic. Um, well, you know, one of the points of that book that we wrote with that title is that uh, democracies don't die like they used to. Uh, during the Cold War, uh, uh, the way that democracies usually died was uh, through military coups. Uh, Three quarters of democratic breakdowns happened at the hands of generals, men with guns, tanks in the streets. You know, these were very vivid images. But since the end of the Cold War, it's much more, you know, sometimes you still get military coups, but it's much more common now for democracies to die at the ballot box. Uh, so politicians get elected through democratic channels, come to office, uh, and then uh, chip away at democratic institutions once in power. And so what makes this so tricky, of course, is that it looks from the outside, from a distance perhaps, uh, that the politicians who've been elected are acting in a democratic fashion. After all, they've been elected, they have a mandate, they may even have majority support, although usually not. They have you know, lots of support. Uh, and so it's hard for citizens and observers to kind of identify precisely what's happening. But you know, as one stands by and waits, uh, democracy gets chipped away at and weakened. And so, you know, actually kind of striking poll that I saw, um, you know, into Hugo Chavez, long into Hugo Chavez's presidency after he was in power, most Venezuelans, according to polls, thought they still lived in a democracy. Uh, so you really only discover it when it comes, when it's too late. And so that that's one of the purposes of writing the book is to identify kind of the warning signs uh, of, how, of to recognize when a democracy is at threat. Okay, so the uh, the name of this series is It's Not That Simple. So I, I wanted you to tell us why protecting democracies is not that simple. Yes, so it, the first problem is exactly the one that I just mentioned, which is that it's that those who are assaulting democracy claim to be acting on behalf of democracy. Um, you know, I, to take a very live example, uh, uh, in Israel today, uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, is weakening, the, uh, attempting to weaken the judiciary, and his government claims he's acting on behalf of the majority who elected him and his government. 
uh, and that courts or judges are unelected and that they're blocking the will of the majority. So this sounds like a pretty good argument, right? And so, you know, I, I actually think, though, that this is also an assault on the checks and balances that are necessary for any democracy. So, you know, how one decides what is a legitimate reform to be democratic that, that, that its advocates say is democratic uh, versus really an assault on democracy it is not that simple, as you, as, as you say. And so I think really digging into that is really important. There's so many aspects of this topic that I hope to get into uh, over the next uh, 20 minutes or so. But I am genuinely, as a human being, worried about the, the, the future of, of democracy, not only because politicians are doing what you said very well, which is claiming they're act, acting on the, uh, in the interests of democracy, but then as soon as they're in power, changing their, their rhetoric and their, and their actions right away, but also because I feel people are increasingly... Uh, bombarded with too much information that confuses their ability, because a lot of it is not true, to make decisions when they go to the polls and uh, uh, make a, a democracy sustainable. Um, how do you look at the current landscape in, in, in the Western world and, and, and uh, give us uh, some kind of hope that uh, the democracy that we grew up with works because, yes, people are informed to make the right decisions, and yes, then the politicians respect those decisions and, and, and move along with them. Yeah, so I think it's important to step back and have a broader historical sweep because one of the things that we often forget, uh, because there's so many worrying signs currently in so many important democracies, the United States, Israel, India, Turkey, uh, you know, I don't even know if we'd call that still a democracy, but in any case, places where democracy seems to be challenged. And so we, we see these crises and, and rightfully are concerned and want to defend democracy. But something that we tend to forget is in the global sweep of, in the grand historical sweep of the last several centuries, there's rarely been more fewer democracies uh, on the planet than there are today. You know, so, so beginning in 1990, there was this real spike in the number of new democracies after the end of the Cold War. Um, and this grew really consistently in, in a stable fashion until about 2010. And so the various democratic indices, varieties of democracies, an organization based out of Sweden, Freedom House is based out of the United States, who code the number of democracies in the world, uh, show that beginning in around 2010, that the growth rate of the number of new democracies sort of flatlined. And that kind of actually makes sense because once a lot of democracies are there, it's hard for new democracies to make headway in really difficult circumstances. But really what became worrying is around 2012, 2015, uh, the number of democracies really began to decline uh, and the number of autocracies began to increase. But still, you know, we have, there's more democracies in the world today than there were in 1990. So, you know, in some sense, we're in a better situation than we were in 1990. Um, so that that's one important fact to keep in mind. Now, one thing that one way that other people have measured this is rather than looking at the number of democracies in the world, the percentage of the population who live in democracies and the, the organization varieties of democracy emphasizes that statistic. And according to that, because there are a lot of large countries like India, like Brazil, like the United States that have had trouble, th this organization tends to point out, you know, the number of uh, citizens living in countries that are democracies or that are in, in democracies facing challenges is increasing. So, you know, if we measure it as the total population, things look more worrying. If we measure it as the number of countries in the world, 
things are actually not as bad as sometimes the hyperventilation would lead us to believe. And so, you know, again, I don't want to de-emphasize the importance of the challenges that West European democracies face, that the United States faces, that lots of other, India, Brazil, mm -hmm. other countries have faced over the last several years. But we do should also remember, on the other hand, there's countries like Taiwan, where democracy is working pretty well, uh, South Korea, places that democratized in the last 20, uh, 30 years, and democracy continues to thrive. So, to come directly to your question very quickly is just to say that, you know, what's the sign that democracy works well? You know, we have to think of what the alternatives are. And it seems to me as challenged as democracy looks, you know, when we compare democracies to the alternatives, you know, there's a famous line from Winston Churchill along these lines that, you know, this is the best, this is the worst system except for all the others. And I think it, in fact, what we're witnessing in many ways, possibly when we see the rise of uh, you know, radical right movements or groups that challenge democracy is we're seeing a process of self-correction underway. And it's and democracies are very transparent. So we see all the messiness. Authoritarian systems, you don't see any of the messiness. So you don't understand, we don't see sort of as directly how weak and fragile they actually may be. Obviously, when you look at, at examples of everything that can go wrong uh, uh, when a democracy doesn't work, I mean, an example we have that of that nowadays is obviously Russia and the war in, in Ukraine. Um, I, I still can't believe in, that in 2023, some of these leaders are allowed to uh, rise to power and then stay there uh, uh, permanently. But that, I'm not going to get into that. What I'm going to get into is what effect do you think the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, has had as a message that democracies work, that they're important, that they're under threat? Well, I think the first thing it shows is the dangers of arbitrary rule. You know, when you have political leaders, I mean, getting to the first part of your question there, I mean, when you have political leaders and the, the, and the virtue of democracy is that leaders are constrained. Uh, that's one of the virtues of democracy. And uh, the... Uh, and it's hard for leaders to carry out arbitrary rule. That is, you know, following whatever whim they want in an unaccountable fashion. And when they, you know, commit major errors, uh, you know, are they punished or not? Uh, elect, you know, at, by by citizens. And in a democracy, politicians, um, you know, if they commit a major error, uh, usually are held to account in the mm -hmm. next election. Uh, and so they they operate with that fear and shadow hanging over them, which is a which is a powerful constraint on their actions. Uh, I think the war in Ukraine showed, which was a major blunder uh, by all accounts on um, the part of Vladimir Putin, uh, and you know he's still in power and very powerful, and so that you know there's an unaccountability which leads to arbitrary rule, and then the dangers of this is that you know the the the, the direct threats this uh, represents to human life, you know, uh, uh, flows from uh, unconstrained leadership. You know, he famously wrote this essay, I guess a few years ago, in which he laid out his vision. Uh, and everybody says, well, if you want to know what he's doing, just you have to read this essay that he wrote. And, you know, the idea that a political leader can kind of write a manifesto and then get his entire country to rally around it and implement it is remarkable. You know, I write essays all the time and, you know, I can hardly get my students to read them. So, you know, I think that this shows you the kind of uh, the, the dangers of unconstrained power. So, you know, and, and the degree to which democracies have responded to this, you know, and the West has responded to this in a pretty coherent, uh, um, cohesive uh, fashion, I think, speaks to the strengths and the alliances and the shared values of democracies. And of course, you know, the, you know, the question, and I think in many ways, Putin 
underestimated the, the strength of, and resilience of democracies. The, the going forward, you know, the question is how long can this coherence of a common front be sustained? That's that's a that's a different question. But I think so far uh, the strength of democracy has been on full display. So, so two uh, traditional examples of democracy. I think we could say. Uh, in, in 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 this conversation are, are the United States and, and Brazil. And obviously, both of those were challenged by Donald Trump and, and Bolsonaro. Uh, the fact that they didn't stay in power, that they lost elections, was that a good sign for democracy? Was that uh, a sign that democracy still can work and will work in these countries? And and what impact did those insurrections have, both both at the Capitol and in, and in Brasilia, as we look forward to an election in the States in, in, in quite a, a, a short period of time and, and, and a new government in Brazil? Yeah, I guess there's good news and bad news. Uh, I mean, the good news is that the elections did work. Um, uh, there was a change in leadership. There was a mass mobilization of citizens to vote across the political spectrum in both places and a kind of broad coalition of voters. You know, many Republicans voted for uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, there's this kind of faction of never Trump Republicans uh, who rallied uh, and recognized the threat that Donald Trump represented, uh, and uh, and so you know the the, the pro pro small d democratic forces uh, won the day in in both countries. That, that's the good news, and so it, you know change of leadership was possible in that sense. The electoral institutions actually continue to work, you know, but the point would be just barely uh, because part of making an, uh, democracy work is that the losers accept the results. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what democracy in effect mm -hmm. is, is a system in which losers give up power. Um, and that barely happened and happened only with great resistance. And, you know, I think what's what's worrying about the event, well, two things. Uh, one, the events themselves are worrying, uh, but they also are worrying in their consequence because the question becomes like, how does how do historians and journalists and citizens interpret the events? And what's happening in the United States um, is a very active effort to recast those events as not so bad. Um, and so there's allies of, of, the, of Trump, Trump and his kind of plans to run again in 2024 to say, you know, either these people assaulting the Congress weren't really that dangerous or they were actually heroes. Um, and this kind of active effort to rewrite the history, I think, means that you have um, less consensus in the world uh, in, in, in politics about what is beyond the pale, what's unacceptable. And when you don't have that kind of consensus, then it means it makes it much easier for this kind of thing to happen again. You know, and there's evidence of this happening throughout history. You know, in France in the 1930s, there was an assault on the French parliament, uh, an effort to overthrow a prime minister, similar kind of thing. And uh, the history that emerged out of that immediately, the, the, the right tried to say these guys were heroes. And this led eventually, I would say, to the establishment to the, the kind of people who supported the Vichy government in France in 1940. So, you know, once you create these constituencies of people who kind of believe that actually this was a great event and a great heroic moment, this can be very dangerous. And so it's really important that the history be written accurately. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, people have tried to do this. That 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 flows very nicely into, into my next question when you talk about rewriting history, because nowadays in, in a digital world, uh, uh, it's so easy to get facts and propaganda confused. And um, what is the role of technology, of social media, of all the regulation around that in protecting democracy as well? So we all have access to the same facts so we can make decisions based on facts and not on hyperbole or on uh, um, 
algorithms or on uh, artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is that it's important to remember that as important as all that stuff is, and I'll say a little bit about that, you know, you did have a Spanish civil war before Twitter, uh, you know, um, you know, so it, these de democracies can, can get into trouble even without social media. Uh, and there's deep social divisions that often often drive that are the kind of key drivers behind these um, moments of democratic crisis. But that said, I, you're absolutely right that um, that technological developments have exacerbated these divisions and have made them uh, um, kind of more active and more impactful. Um, and you know, so as a result of that, there's a kind of phenomenon of you know people describe as echo chambers where you only listen to your own news universe um, and you and there's good social scientific evidence saying that if you only listen to right-wing media and you're on the right then you'll be pushed further to the right if you're only on the left and you only listen to left-wing media you're pushed further to the left that seems to re really be an actual effect um, and then you reproduce that at a mass level across society and this increases polarization people begin to view each other not as much as common citizens, but as as enemies and the increased fear that the other side, if they come to power, are increasingly dangerous. And when both sides regard the other side as such a danger that you're willing to go to extreme measures to prevent them from getting into power, then you have a democracy that's deconsolidating. And so I think in this way, social media and various technological developments really matter a great deal. And so the, the question and the challenge, I think, for uh, social institutions, political leaders, um, you know, media, new, you know, major news networks, establishment newspapers, and so on, is to try to create a common arena, common public sphere, where there are a shared set of facts. It's very difficult, of course, because the the kind of financial motives, I think, often are, you know, I've, I've spoken to journalists and to people who run news networks who will say, you know, I look at, I, you know, we run a story with a particular headline, and we look at the results and the traffic that comes to our uh, station. And, you know, there's really, even though I know it's not such a great thing to do it, it's pretty tempting to put kind of more inflammatory stuff and highlight certain news stories. And so there's a there's a certain ethical obligation, I think, of journalists, for instance, as, you know, as, um, you know, they're professionals, abide by our professional ethos to really try to counteract that. It's, it's difficult, though. There's no, no question about that. Well, I can tell you, I, I know of news desks of, of, of digital platforms that are constantly changing headlines throughout the day according to the traffic that particular stories are getting in order to get more engagement from whoever is on the site at that particular time. So definitely, I think journalism's an, uh, journalism as a whole and, and editors specifically need to have a big responsibility and accountability around focusing on, on, on facts and not, again, on, on sensationalism. I did want to touch on, on Portugal a little bit because... Uh, we have practically five decades of, of, of democracy, but for the first time, a far-right party has representation in, in Parliament. And in your opinion, what is the, the major cause for the, for the rise of, of extremism or, or far-right parties? And what is the role of kind of the woke movement in, in uh, precipitating it or, or, or certainly uh, uh, driving it as well? Yeah, well, you know, yeah, so Portugal in many ways was kind of a beat, the last beacon of a mm -hmm. country within Europe without a far significant far right movement. And so I think yeah. a lot of people continue to look to Portugal. Um, and, you know, it's still pretty small in the last elections, uh, a pretty small share of the vote. But I know in polls, it's increasingly popular. What's pretty clear, I think, is there's around 20 to 25 percent of electorates in all major democracies, in all democracies, I would say, 
West European, North America in particular, that uh, find the kinds of messages that the, the far right, populist far right uh, offers to be very appealing. That's, it's, you know, the, the sort of core of Trump support is about 30% of the electorate, 20, even less, perhaps. The core, you know, the, the upper limit of the AFD, let's say, in Germany is sometimes estimated to be about that amount. And so, you know, I would guess that in Portugal, maybe, you know, there, that there is that potential to reach those levels. The question is, and, you know, that number is not set, though, you know, I mean, it's not fixed in stone. It's, you know, there's a certain segment of the electorate that finds that, and hopefully over time, that percentage of the electorate, you know, becomes less, but there is that potential there. And I think what drive, what, what activates this number to increase over time are things like economic crises, uh, immigration crises, kind of major demographic shifts in populations. These are, and, and, but I think really a major role is played by establishment political parties and how they respond to these, these kind of challenges. Um, and if there's a way in which mainstream political parties, um, uh, respond to these threats by kind of parroting a lot of the rhetoric. This in, in a sort of paradoxical way, rather than absorbing the voters, legitimates uh, that that view. And voters then say, well, you know, there's a mainstream party saying this stuff, and then there's the real deal that's saying this stuff. I'm going to vote for the real deal. So I think there's a danger of mainstream parties um, acting, trying to act too populist in a sense. Uh, to try to to appeal to these voters, and they have to come up with you know real solutions to real problems. Now, in terms of, of wokeness, I mean, I think this is part of the rhetoric of the of the right uh, around the advanced democracies is to say that you know our you know things have changed uh, dramatically in the way cult, you know cultural changes have taken place, and, and there's a kind of backlash against that. And I think you know in some sense there is a um, you know the people are responding to something real. But you know, I also sense that this is exaggerated in terms of its importance. I mean, it's it's a very um, self-conscious strategy of the right to highlight these issues and to take very minor instances. You know, you know, small portions of the of national electorates. Um, you know, uh, small but important, but nonetheless small, numerically speaking, are, you know, affected by directly by transgender issues, for instance. But this is, a, you know, it's obviously an important issue. But on the other hand, you know, in the national scope of things, I think this takes on an exaggerated importance because the right wants to take advantage of this issue to, to, to mobilize voters. So I think in some sense, we should be uh, wary of attributing too much to this kind of woke, woke kind of politics. Um, and really what the, you know, I think mainstream parties should try to do is to solve the real problems that really concern most people in their daily lives, which are often material, education, they, people want their kids to go to good schools, they want their state streets to be safe, yeah. they want their kids to be able to play in the park on Sunday, and these kinds of things. And that's, those, those are the kinds of issues uh, that, you know, motivate really most voters. Okay, so I've got three more questions before we get to the quick fire. And... Um, I'm going to try to, to run through these in, in, in our time slot. So first question to you is, we've talked about the threat of politicians rising to power and then trying to change the, the system of government to benefit their own uh, uh, purposes. What kind of checks and balances, in your opinion, should governments have generally to make sure that politicians are uh, respecting the constitution and the regulation that is there in a specific country? 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I kind of left the issue hanging, I think, with your first question when I mentioned the example of Israel, which is, you know, under what conditions is an assault an assault? Under what conditions is it just trying to reform a democracy? Mm-hmm. You know, I think in order to, to answer that, we really need to have a pretty clear idea of what democracy is. And, you know, the, a very simple way of thinking about democracy, it contains multiple elements, but really um, – uh, is to think that there's sort of three core pillars. Uh, so this is maybe not so simple, uh, but three core pillars. Uh, one, uh, uh, participation. That is, the more that voters participate in politics, yeah. the more impact yeah. they have, the better, more democratic. The competition. That is, the more contested races are, the close, the more genuine the competition between political parties, the more democratic a system is. And the third pillar is civil liberties. You know, the rights of individuals need to be protected. And so any... Uh, attack, any institutional reforms that helps those three things is democratic. Any institutional reform that hurts those three, any of those three things is anti-democratic. So in order to understand, you know, so when, let's say uh, there's an assault on the judiciary, you know, try to expand the judiciary or fire all the members of the court. Often what's actually taking place is an effort by an executive to co- increase their control of the political system and to reduce the possibility for genuine contestation or competition. Or if you redraw election districts in a way that reduces competition and makes it easier for the incumbent to win, that's anti-democratic. This is what one of the things that Viktor Orban in Hungary is often held up as the model of this uh, form of politics. You know, one of the first things he did when he came into power was impose a retirement age, change the way that judges are selected so he'd get the referees on his side. And you think of an analogy of a football game. Yeah. Uh, then the next thing he did was he rewrote the electoral boundaries and he essentially tilted the playing field against the opposition. And then the third thing he did is he went after the opposition players, media, universities, and so yeah. on. And the, and the purpose of all of this in the end was to, in effect, make competition and, and contestation against the leader much more difficult. So um, maybe I'm going to uh, uh, put the last two questions together in the interests of time. Um, when, when, when we talk about the world being increasingly bipolar when it comes to political, uh, um, in the political sphere, uh, we could pick the United States and China being part of that, of, of that uh, ecosystem. Um, what does the future of, of democracy look like to you? Um, and, and will it be confined only to part of the globe and be affected by the countries? Uh, and economies that have a closer relationship with either the U.S. or either China? Well, looking at the last uh, 10 years of data, the democracy is, in fact, growing in a lot of unsurprising uh, places, you know, I mean, and and has remained resilient. Um, And it's not always, you know, it's, you know, it's not it's not simply wealth. It's not simply size and so on. I mean, so democracy can thrive in unlikely circumstances. It is true that foreign policy of major powers plays a major, as an important role. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know this in the history of Portugal, for instance. You know the the uh, role of of the U.S. and other countries. You know, uh, you know, big powers have had an impact on what happened in 1974 in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in democracies around the world today, I mean, what's so distinctive about the current moment was different from, let's say, 1995-1996. Is where is in 1995-1996, the it was a kind of unipolar moment where. The EU and the U.S. were committed to expanding democracy, and there was no opposition to that globally. Today, you know, Russia is much more assertive. Uh, China is much more impactful. And so there is an alternative uh, model on offer. And so, you know, you see this in Chinese uh, foreign policy in different regions of the world and its interventions for economic reasons in Africa. 
And so this means that there's sort of competing models on offer. And um, so, you know, I think democracies have to perform and be able to deliver for citizens. And I think ultimately uh, then this will determine what how democracy fares in other parts of the world. And so that's why it, that's why it's so important that in Western Europe and the United States, the democracy work, because mm -hmm. if it fails there, then it, it's the model disappears for the rest of the world. Exactly, exactly. Crucial point. So we're getting to the quick fire. Uh, four questions in one word or in one sentence, if you could please answer these. I know they could take a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, but the first one is, what personality trait, according to your experience, do you think that a good leader could benefit from having? Charisma and the ability to compromise. Okay. What is the biggest challenge for humanity in, in our lifetime? Climate change. A lot of people pick that one. If you could change one thing in the world today by, by magic, what, what would that be? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, a rapid energy transformation that mm. suddenly overnight we're all relying on uh, yeah, solar panels. Yeah. And that. Yeah. Very, very good one. And, and finally, what do you consider to be the most important learning of your, of your life and career? Uh, the, the, the most important learning. So learning um, of your life and career. Um, you mean that I've learned from from others? I don't. I don't uh, the, that you that have I, learned from yes, life I, and from okay, and from your it. career. What is one thing you know at the end of your life that that you'll you'll the, the most important thing you'll you'll kind of take uh, with you? I think that at the end of the day, it's individual uh, morality and courage that matter the most. Okay. Very good one. Um, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure to have an opportunity to, to speak with you. Uh, you. You've definitely shed a lot of light, I think, not only for me, but more importantly for our, for our viewers and listeners on, on this tremendously important, important subject. Uh, continued success in your, uh, in your endeavors and in uh, trying to, um, I guess, uh, uh, not, not just educate, but inspire uh, others to to know more about this uh, the system of government, which is so important to allow to to give people a voice in whatever nation or territory they're living in. Absolutely, thank you so much. It's not that simple. Is a podcast from Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. Tune in every month at ffms.pt or subscribe on the usual platforms. <laughs>